Thank you, Van, and good morning, College Hills. And, and speaking of shepherding, I wanted to uh, bring you up to date on one situation. A, a letter was given to me this morning of, of an individual here who wanted um, me to give an update on her journey and how this church has shepherded her over the last many months. This is from Amy Phillips, and she writes this to our church family. Dear church family, we just celebrated Thanksgiving. This year, it means more to me than ever before. About eight weeks ago, I was at the lowest point that I believe I've ever been in my life, and I was ready to say goodbye to this world. I made a phone call to my sweet angel on earth. She called another friend, and she came to me. The next day, I spoke with Wilson, and on Sunday, I came forward, and Wilson shared some things with this wonderful church family, and I said I needed prayers and help, and I've never felt more love than any time in my life from this church family than I have felt from this one in a long time. This chosen church family of mine is there when I need y'all. I'm in therapy and I'm proud to say that. And I can honestly say that I'm fine and mean it. I know that I will have bad times again and I also know that I can get through it with the love that I get from my chosen family, which is College Hills, and a few more people in my life. I just want each and every one of you to know that I'm grateful for each of you. Thank you for being you and loving me. So that's from our sweet sister, Amy Phillips, and I just wanted to say thank you on behalf of her and read that letter. Um, and again, echo what she says to say thank you all uh, for being so good to her, uh, for loving her, for rallying around her, um, as so many of you have done behind the scenes, as so many of you have gone above and beyond to make sure that she's okay. And I think that speaks to the character uh, and the kind of church that we have. And so I wanted to say thank you uh, on behalf of her. She's here today. Uh, find her, give her a hug, and continue to let her know that we're, we're with her uh, on her journey as she continues to heal uh, and get better by the power of God. Uh, we are starting a new sermon series today uh, called Christmas Presents. And what we're going to be doing over the next several weeks is we're going to be uh, looking at different passages in Scripture, uh, some that we may expect, uh, and some that we may not expect about how we can orient our minds and hearts around the many uh, presents that we get uh, from God during the season. The most important being uh, the presence of God and the person of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. And today to kick off our series, we're going to be looking um, at Luke chapter 1, verses 67 through 79. Here's what we read there in Luke's gospel. Then his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke this prophecy. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has looked favorably on his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a mighty Savior for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we would be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Thus he has shown the mercy promised to our ancestors and has remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our ancestor Abraham, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, would be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the forgiveness of their sins. By the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us 
to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this morning. We are grateful, um, as Van said, for all of the individuals here who serve and bless behind the scenes. We're grateful for all of the parts of the body that you have blessed us with here. We're grateful that you have given us work to do. Uh, We're grateful that you have shown us what love looks like in your son and that we as your people who are in Christ continue to try to reflect that love to each other. So help us as as we try to do that together by the power of your spirit. God, I pray for this new uh, sermon series that we'll be moving through over the next few weeks as as the world turns our hearts and our minds and our attention to the entrance of Jesus into the world and the precious gift that he is. And we pray that you would speak through these lessons and these sermons. I pray today that you would give me the gift of preaching and teaching, that you would give us all the gift of open hearts, that we would hear your voice and be transformed by it more into the image of your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray by the power of your spirit. Amen. On October 15th, 1999, a man by the name of Nicholas White was working at the McGraw-Hill building in New York City. He was on the 43rd floor and it was time for his lunch break and so he decided that he would go down to the bottom floor, go outside, eat lunch, and then go back up to the 43rd floor where he worked. However, instead of taking the typical standard elevator that would stop at each floor along the way, he decided to take the express elevator, which was a special elevator designed for this tall building that went from floor 1 to floor 40, and so he could get to 43 a bit quicker by taking the express elevator. However, on this day, the express elevator turned out to be a not-so-express elevator because as he was headed up on the express elevator, it stopped unexpectedly. White pressed the alarm button, waiting for someone to come and rescue him, but no one came. He pressed the button again, waiting for someone to come and rescue him, but no one came. Now, if you begin right now to feel your palms getting a little sweaty at the thought of this scenario, let me go ahead and warn you, it doesn't get any better. Because he then decided that he would get maybe a bit resourceful and try to pry open the doors to see if maybe he could get out if he was stuck in between floors. But when he opened the door, all he saw was a wall of cinder blocks with the number, I kid you not, 13 written on the cinder blocks in front of him. It was then he remembered that this was the express elevator and that there were no openings in this particular elevator chute for another 20 or so floors. He paced. He pressed the alarm again. He paced, he laid down, he even, in the spirit of the Die Hard movies, tried to climb out of the top of the elevator, but nothing was working. He was stuck in this elevator. Now, somebody may wonder, was there not security cameras in this particular elevator? And there was. There was a security camera. However, it would not be for a total of five security guard shifts before one of those beloved security guards, finally noticed that there was someone stuck on the express elevator. 
Each of these shifts lasted eight hours, which meant that Nicholas White was trapped in this elevator for a total of 41 hours. For 41 hours, Nicholas White was trapped in between departure and destination. For 41 hours, Nicholas White was, was stuck in between in a place that he was not supposed to be stuck that long. And then, to add insult to injury, when they finally did get him out of the elevator, he stepped out of the elevator, he turns down to the left, and he sees the maintenance crew working on the wrong elevator. So just when he thought it was going to be better, he realized it wasn't even getting better for the next people. But he escaped, he was out, and that was a good thing. But 41 hours on this elevator, 41 hours in this place that he was not supposed to be stuck for that long. There's actually a term in the world of, of architecture to describe this place where Nicholas White found himself, and it's the term liminal space. And a liminal space is an in-between space. A liminal space in the world of architecture is a space that exists only in relationship to other spaces. An elevator, an escalator, a stairwell are all liminal spaces because they are only existing in relationship to something else, in this case, to other floors. You might think of another liminal space, a school hallway, for example. It serves its purpose simply in relationship to these other classrooms where people are supposed to go. A hallway just in the middle of nowhere, a stairwell in the middle of nowhere, doesn't really make any sense because it's intended to connect other locations. An airport, for example, is a liminal space because it's an in-between space. It's not supposed to just exist on its own. It exists to get people to other places. Now, there's a couple of interesting things about this idea of liminal space. The first is this word liminal comes from an old Latin word that means threshold. And whenever we think about someone on a threshold, we, we think about someone on the brink of something. We think about someone on the edge of one thing to the next. And so we probably think of the threshold of a door, because what is it? It is this in-between space between one room and the next. That, that a person who's on a threshold has, has been one place, and they're headed to another place. The second interesting thing about this word liminal and this idea of liminal space is that while it started in the world of architecture, it's been used to describe other places and stations and emotional states in life. That it's not just a description for the world of architecture, but it's also a description for the world of psychology, for sociology. So a, a person would be in a liminal state when they're in that place between graduation and their first career. A person would be in a liminal space when they're in that space from being engaged to being married. A person would be in a liminal space when they're in that in-between between middle age and old age. This is why we often talk about midlife crises, right? Because these in-between spaces can be difficult places to be. It doesn't matter if it's 41 hours on an elevator or another emotional place between being engaged and being married. These in-between places can be challenging. They can be difficult, not just when it comes to a physical place or maybe an emotional place, but also to a faith place. 
Because that's the other thing that's really important about this term, that, that liminal spaces are very much a way to talk about our faith journey. That experiencing in between times is a common, normal part of the faith journey experience. The people of God have a long history of being in liminal spaces. We might think of Noah and his family on the ark. For 40 days, they're there as the rain is pouring down and the floods are rising, and they're in this weird in-between place of being obedient to the promise of God and that promise being fulfilled. We might think of the people of Israel wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, being in that very difficult place between being delivered and being brought home to the promised land. We might think of the people of Israel rebuilding the temple when the temple was destroyed and they were sent home to rebuild it, going through that long process of watching the temple be rebuilt. And if any of you have ever built a home or rebuilt a home, you know that in-between time of rebuilding is a strange and sometimes stressful place. And it's not just true of the Old Testament. If we keep reading into the New Testament, we see more of this same theme. We think of the apostles at the beginning of Acts who are gathered in that upper room in Jerusalem, right in between Ascension and Pentecost, right in between that moment where Jesus was taken up to heaven and he leaves them a promise of the Holy Spirit and it would take 50 days before that Spirit was poured out and the promise was fulfilled. And for those 50 days, they were in this strange in-between time. A few chapters later in the same book, the book of Acts, Paul has the same kind of experience. He's on the road to Damascus. And as he's going to Damascus, the vision of the resurrected Lord appears before him and he is left blinded with these scale-like objects on his eyes. And for three days, he goes without food or drink. For three days, he can't see a thing. For three days, he is in this in-between space of having this experience of Jesus and this experience of Jesus being fulfilled in a way that he never could have expected. Time and time again, we see this theme throughout Scripture. I remember the first time that I was introduced to this theme. I was a freshman in college, and I was going to different churches each Sunday because I knew that being in Nashville, there was a lot of great churches and great preachers, and, and there was a few that I wanted to hear that I'd never heard before. I'd heard of them, but I never heard them. And there was this one particular Sunday that they were having this college lunch, and so I was going there but I was all, for the lunch, but I was also going there because the person who I'd heard of before I'd never heard preach, and I really wanted to hear him preach. And so I was particularly tuned in on this Sunday morning as a freshman in college waiting to hear this man speak a word from God. And in hindsight, I, I see that Sunday as, as God's guidance and God's leading me there because... His sermon text for the day wasn't a text as much as it was a topic, as much as it was a theme. And the theme was this name of his sermon. His sermon was called Already But Not Yet. And what he did in that sermon, and I still remember it vividly, he talked about all of these different passages in Paul's writing where Paul talks about the reality of Christianity as this already but not yet existence. We are 
already saved by Jesus, but yet we are not yet fully at home with Jesus. We already taste these glimpses of the kingdom in the everyday, but, but we're not yet fully feasting with the lamb at the great wedding feast. We are already experiencing life with God, but yet we are not fully experiencing life with God as we will in the new heavens and the new earth. And this sermon and this Sunday morning was a kind of grace for me because all of a sudden I felt like I had language for an experience that I had never had language for before. That This particular preacher was naming something for me that, that I had experienced as a Christian, but because I had never had the language for it, I, I wasn't quite sure how to navigate it and handle it. And not just in my personal experience, but I've also noticed this in the lives of others, that when they are in between places and they don't have the language to name this as a normal part of the Christian experience, that, that we can often respond and react in a variety of ways. That when we find ourselves in an unexpected in-between, sometimes we can grow disillusioned and doubtful. Sometimes when we're in an in-between space, we can grow frustrated maybe a bit cynical and angry. Sometimes when we're in an in-between place, we can get really weary. We can get really worn out, and we can really think about wanting to just give up. Being in in-between places in life and in the life of faith are difficult seasons to go through. They're difficult places to be. And, and even though they're common and normal, that doesn't make them any easier when we're in them. And so what we need, I think, as the people of God, are examples of heroes of faith. Men and women of faith who can give us instruction and guidance on how to handle these times and places and seasons when we find ourselves in between. And that's why I think the character of Zechariah is so important for us in this season where we're thinking a lot about being in between. Because I think Zechariah offers us some surprising wisdom and insight for what to do and how to handle these seasons of in-between. These seasons where we feel that tension of, of already and not yet. Because everything about his experience that we read about in Luke's gospel is filled with this sense of being in-between. It starts right from the very first description of him when Luke writes these words. In the time of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all of the Lord's commandments and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. This description of the very first person we meet in Luke's gospel is saturated in being in this weird in-between space. First, we're told that, that Zechariah is serving in the time of King Herod. And that subtle historical detail from Luke is a reminder to us of this long history that the people of God have experienced, where they had been promised that a king would come and deliver them, but they had lived under the oppressive rule of all of these tyrannical kings, including Herod. And so they were situated in this place of being promised a Messiah, being promised an anointed one, but that anointed one has not 
yet arrive. And this is where Zechariah lives. Second really interesting detail is that we're told that Zechariah is a priest. And what is a priest but an in-between vocation? A priest is an intermediary, right? That they serve in this really unique in-between space between the divine and the everyday. That they were in this unique space of offering sacrifices, keeping watch at the temple, serving in this holy spot where the people could meet with God. And so a priest of all vocations in the ancient world was very much an in-between vocation. And then finally we're told that Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth are without child, and yet they're obedient. In other words, they are in this strange in-between spot of doing everything right and yet not having everything go right for them. And some of us know the difficulty of being in that very strange in-between place. Everything about Zachariah's story is couched in this strange in-between space. And if we keep reading... In the very next scene, the, the situation of Zechariah is only going to get more in between. Because Zechariah is serving on duty as a priest and he's burning incense in the temple. And while he's burning incense, an angel of the Lord appears before him and makes this extraordinary promise that he and his wife are going to have a child. They're going to have a son, this very unique figure in God's history with his people. It's promised to Zechariah, but Zechariah's first response is to question, to doubt this promise of God. And as a result, Zechariah is plagued with silence for nine months. Now, some of the women in here may think having a husband plagued with silence for nine months of a pregnancy is more of a blessing than a curse. But in this situation, it was a punishment for his doubt. It was a punishment for his disbelief. It was a punishment for him not believing the promise of God. And so for nine months, Zechariah is in complete silence. For nine months, Zechariah is left to contemplate this experience that he had had with this angel in the temple reflecting on not just what happened to him, but, but what was promised was going to happen through him and Elizabeth. For nine months he waits, and he waits, and he waits. For nine months he's in this complete silent place to contemplate and meditate on all that had just been promised to him. And I don't know everything that happened to him in this nine months, because we're not told. But the one thing that I do know is I know what happens as soon as he emerges from the in-between. I know the first thing that he does when he is finally able to emerge from this strange in-between space. And the reason that I know is because Luke tells us. Because John the Baptist is born, and then we read this about the eighth day. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they were going to name him Zachariah after his father. But his mother said, no, he is to be called John. They said to her, None of your relatives has this name. Then they began motioning to his father to find out what name he wanted to give him. He asked for a writing tablet and wrote, 
His name is John. And all of them were amazed. Immediately, his mouth was open and his tongue freed, and he began to speak, praising God. The very first thing that Zechariah does when he emerges out of this strange in-between place is he immediately begins praising God. The first response that he has on the other side of the in-between is to worship God, to acknowledge God, to praise God. And it's not a generic praise, it's a very specific praise. We're actually given the entire song of Zechariah that the Holy Spirit gives to him. And there's a lot that we could unpack in that song. But there's one thing I want to highlight this morning. Because it's the one thing that Zechariah repeats twice about God. It's the only thing that he repeats twice about God. And the one thing that he repeats, the one thing that he makes note of twice is the mercy of God. He says it at the very beginning of his song. He has raised up a mighty savior for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we would be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Thus he has shown mercy promised to our ancestors and has remembered his holy covenant. So in the first part of this song, Zechariah looks back over the history of God's people and he sees God's gracious, merciful hand being faithful to these promises. And that faithfulness is this posture of mercy from God to the people. But then this really interesting thing happens in the song where Zechariah doesn't just look backward, but he also looks forward. And he talks about another day that's going to come by the tender mercy of our God. The dawn from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Zechariah looks back, not just through his own history, but through the history of God's people. And he sees God's merciful hand at work, faithfully guiding the people to where he is standing. And yet Zechariah also looks forward, and he believes that God's mercy is going to continue to be at work in the life of the people. God is drawn before us by Zechariah, but not just any part of God, the, the mercy of God, the graciousness of God, the compassion of God. This is the thing that Zechariah points to as he breaks out into song for the first time in nine months. And this is why I think Zechariah's words are so important for us to hear. I think he speaks a really important and powerful word to us today for those of us who feel that increasing tension of being in the in-between. Because we're always going through these in-between places in our faith journey. And sometimes we do not know how to navigate them. And I believe that Zachariah's words are the words of a person who's emerging out of an in-between who we can hear speak to us as a promise to us. As a promise to remind us to look back and to see those moments in our life where God's merciful, compassionate, 
faithful hand has been at work. And because we can see that in our past, we can also look to the future with conviction that God will be merciful to us again. Because Zechariah stands where we stand today. We look back and we see the merciful hand of God bringing Jesus into the world. And yet, we're also waiting for that day when mercy will break from on high again and Jesus will return to call us home. And so while we're in this strange in-between time, my prayer is that these words of Zechariah to us will become words for us. That this song of Zechariah will become a kind of song for us and give us language for when we do not know what to say when we're in the in-between. And so this morning what I want to do is I want to close by reading this song over us. And I want to ask you to stand and I want to just read this as a word, not just to us, but for us as we hear the word of the Lord as we close this morning. Zechariah says, to us and for us this morning. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has looked favorably on his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a mighty Savior for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we would be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Thus he has shown the mercy promised to our ancestors and has remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our ancestor Abraham to grant us that we, being rescued from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the forgiveness of their sins, by the tender mercy of our God. The dawn from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for these words of Zechariah, for this song that you gave him as a gift to us. And I pray that these words would give us guidance, that they would ground us and root us in your amazing history of mercy with us, with our church, with the people of God, and that you would allow us to sink deep in that promised faithful mercy as we turn to the future as we long for the day when Jesus will return, that, that in the meantime, in the middle time, in this in-between time, we would trust your mercy in all seasons. We pray these things in your son's precious name. Amen.